if you have a controversial website for any number of reasons, um, if you don't have an entity like Cloudflare, an organization like Cloudflare who can provide a set of services in front of you, you probably can't stay up. Uh, and we actually saw this in the run-up to the Daily Stormer. Um, so some of the, the the comments that we got and some of the, the the tweets that sort of came at us were basically get out of the way so that we can DDoS them off the internet. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 3rd, 2020. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I were joined by Alyssa Starzak, the head of public policy at Cloudflare, the internet infrastructure company you've probably never heard of, but almost certainly rely on every day. Cloudflare provides key components of the infrastructure that helps websites stay online. And we wanted to talk to Alyssa about two high-profile incidents in which the company decided to pull its services from websites publishing or hosting extremist violent content. In August 2017, after the white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Cloudflare CEO Matthew Prince announced that he would no longer be providing service to the neo-Nazi website The Daily Stormer. Two years later, Cloudflare also pulled service from the forum 8chan, after the forum was linked to a string of violent attacks. Alyssa sat down to talk all this through with us. What is it that Cloudflare actually does? And why does blocking a website from using its services have such a big effect? And how does Cloudflare, which isn't a social media platform like Facebook or Twitter, think about its role in deciding what content should and shouldn't stay up? Should it be playing that role at all? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 3rd, Alyssa Starzak on Cloudflare, Content Moderation, and the Internet Stack. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. So one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is that probably every single one of our listeners interacts with Cloudflare services multiple times a day just over the course of their their time on the internet. And full disclosure, Lawfare does use Cloudflare as well. Uh, but I, I'm guessing that the vast majority aren't actually familiar with it and may not even know what Cloudflare does. So just in non-technical terms, what is it that Cloudflare does? That's a great question. And you're absolutely right. No one does know it. <laughs> no, except us. Um, so Cloudflare is actually a global network. Uh, and what we do is we're, we're a cybersecurity company, essentially. Um, so we actually position our global network in front of individual websites, t- typically, uh, so that they can't get cyber attacked or so that if there's an, a lot of traffic to a site, it doesn't go down. Um, so what that means in practice, imagine you have all of a sudden a site gets incredibly popular. Uh, we can actually serve a lot of requests for that information and it never, it doesn't affect your underlying website. So it actually protects it from, from too much traffic. And sometimes too much traffic is malicious traffic. So people will send a lot of requests so that your website goes down. So we protect against that. Um, we have other services too. Um, we're a network infrastructure company, um, but that is sort of something that we're well known for. Great. And exactly how much of the internet depends on you doing that? Like, can you give us sort of an idea of the scale of Cloudflare's business? So we have more than 25 million domains that use our service and a huge percentage of traffic that just runs through our network. So a massive amount of the, the internet runs through our network. Um, and as you said, most people have no idea that they're actually crossing through. And so you've been head of public policy at Cloudflare since 2017. Just talk us through what does your role at the company involve? 
Sure. So, uh, so Cloudflare's had a public policy team for a long time because even though we're an infrastructure company, we recognize that there are a lot of big public policy issues that affect the company. So um, I actually started and we were only about 450 employees uh, and we had already had a public policy team. And our public policy team does a lot of things. So we, we look at what's happening in different places around the world from a, from a legislative standpoint. We educate um, policymakers about the kinds of services that we offer. Uh, and then we also think about our internal side. So what are we building that might have public policy implications or that might raise public policy interest. And, and we also, our public policy team also runs um, some of our sustainability and corporate social responsibility programs. Uh, so we have programs, for example, that provide free services to nonprofits. Uh, we have a project that um, provides free services to state and local election websites uh, and a lot of other things that actually are just sort of Cloudflare doing, trying to do good for the world. So you came to Cloudflare after a, a career in government. So you're a general counsel for the U.S. Army, deputy general counsel at the Defense Department, and we're also counsel on the Senate Intelligence Committee and, and before that in the CIA's Office of General Counsel. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what it's like to go from working in the national security space in government to, to working for Cloudflare. I mean, on the one hand, obviously, you're working in the private sector, but on the other hand, you know, you've gone from the U.S. government, an entity with an enormous amount of power, to Cloudflare, which has incredible power in its own way. So what's the biggest difference for you in sort of thinking about how to exercise that power in the private sector versus how you thought about it while in government? Well, so there's a, there's a pretty significant size difference um, between the U.S. Army and Cloudflare when I started. Um, so imagine being in an organization with 1.1 million people um, and then going to an organization with 450. Um, uh, and the, uh, the, the military just generally is a very, there, there is a policy for everything. Um, so everything has been thought through. Um, you know, if you think about military policy generally, there are regulations on how you can wear your hair right, and how long your hair can be cut. Right? I mean, it's it's everything from uniforms to you know every aspect of people's lives. And then and then obviously on the the more operational side, uh, everything is about authorities and what are you actually authorized to do. So it's a very it's a very sort of regulated world in a way on the military side. Cloudflare is a tech company. It was a relatively small tech company. A lot of things. Things happen fast. Things uh, you can actually develop a product in a very short period of time. You're not going through 15 layers of regulatory approval before you move forward. Um, and so it's just a, a different pace and a different a different sense of what you can do at what speed. That said, I think some of the issues that come up on a daily basis are not actually that different. Um, and the types of work that you're doing, you're doing a lot of issue spotting. You're doing, you're trying to think about what are the concerns with something that someone has proposed, um, just as a lawyer, right? So practical, practical considerations. Um, what does this mean? Um, what are the implications? Um, are there downstream effects? That type of work is actually very similar in government and in the private sector. So we're notionally a disinformation podcast, and we spend a lot of time talking about how social media companies decide what people can and can't see online and what's allowed on their services. And we've just talked and heard a lot about how Cloudflare is in in large ways an infrastructure company in, in the infrastructure layers of the internet. But there are times where Cloudflare has been caught up and made some content-based decisions. So there's a term that for the heads of public policy at the social media platforms that of like Facebook and Google, where they're half jokingly called the deciders because they're the people that get to decide the rules and the decisions at the end of the day about what's allowed on their platform. So are you Cloudflare's decider? <laughs> 
Uh, no, I would not call myself Cloudflare's decider, um, in part because we have policy, big policy decisions for the most part. So uh, we were actually, when we were founded in 2010, uh, one of the things that we did that was really novel at the time was that we actually created a free service. So if you think about what the internet was like in 2010, it was that the types of services that we offer, which can speed up people's content um, and can protect it from cyber attack, were really only available to very large enterprises who could pay a lot of money. So when we launched in 2010, as, as something that was a free product, it was a very new world for people. Um, and the decision, when you launch a free product, um, the idea is that people can sign up online. You're, you're, you're allowing people to sort of sign up automatically without going through salespeople. You don't have interaction with them. It happens it happens because they have come to you, not because you have gone out to them. Uh, and so the the reality of that is that you end up with, as an infrastructure provider, you end up with a set of people who've signed up for your service. For the most part, we think um, because of the kinds of services that we offer, because they're security oriented, that it's a really good thing that people have, that there are fewer DDoS attacks online, no matter who you are. Um, that is just a good thing from a cybersecurity standpoint. Um, it's it, it disincentivizes people from using cyber attacks to to influence what stays online, for example, uh, and so just generally a good thing. So our, for the most part, um, the decider for us is that we are neutral infrastructure. Um, that is our, our role is to prevent cyber attacks. That is something that we do um, on sort of a base level for anyone who signs up for service, which is a very different thing, I think, than a social media platform that is developing a set of standards um, of how you can operate within their community. So it's, it's I think the, the difference of being a decider when you're actually setting up Who's in your community? Who do you want in? Who do you want out? You have to have a decider. It's the it's the bouncer at the door. Um, that's not that's not exactly what we look like as a company. Okay, great. So that's extremely useful background for discussing a possible exception to that. But before we go <laughs> into that, uh, I just want to pick up on something that you mentioned that I think is also useful background that it might be useful to explain for our listeners. What's a DDoS attack, and what what does Cloudflare uh, have to do with DDoS attacks? Sure. So I mentioned at the beginning that we uh, we have a large network that we sit where we sit in front of infrastructure or sit in front of people's websites, for example. Well, if you want a website to go offline, typically um, there's not a lot of infrastructure there to accept requests. Uh, so you can actually send a bunch of requests to an unprotected website um, and they will eventually go offline if you send enough enough requests, internet requests to them. Uh, and that's what our network prevents. So if, if you think about it from a service standpoint, um, what we end up doing, the cybersecurity component of that is that we can prevent a type of attack, which is really easy to get online, unfortunately, where somebody sends a bunch of traffic to your site and it takes it offline. One of the challenges, I think, in the online space, and this is this is also where sort of the origins of Cloudflare become interesting, is that it's really easy to just purchase a DDoS attack online. Uh, so, for example, um, you know, we have stories of it might be around Valentine's Day, um, and florists get DDoS. Um, why? Well, you can, might be a competitive advantage, who knows, right? But you have circumstances where it's just easy to take a website offline um, that may have benefits for some people. And the easiest way to do that is just to direct a bunch of traffic to that site. That's what Cloudflare can prevent. And that's called a DDoS attack, a distributed denial of service attack. That's great. So, Let's talk about then the the exception um, <laughs> that Evelyn mentioned. And there are two I think that we wanted to ask you about. One has to do with the Daily Stormer and one has to do with 8chan. But let's start with the Daily Stormer. 
So as people may remember, in August 2017, after the white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Cloudflare terminated service to the Daily Stormer, which is a neo-Nazi website, after it had celebrated the rally and the death of one woman who had been killed. After making that decision, uh, Cloudflare CEO Matthew Prince wrote a now, I think, pretty famous email to staff saying that this was an arbitrary decision and and wrote, you know, I woke up this morning in a bad mood and decided to kick them off the internet and wrote in a follow-up blog post that the decision was dangerous and that one of Cloudflare's staff members had asked him, uh, is this the day the internet dies? (laughs) So with that on the table, could you talk a little bit about sort of what that was like from your perspective and why it was such a difficult decision? Like, why is it that Prince felt that terminating services to a website like the Daily Stormer was dangerous. Well, this goes back to that set of principles that that I had I talked about before. I we have long had a view that we are not making decisions on content. Our goal is to to reduce the number of cyber attacks online. Um, the fact that we can do that for a lot of people is actually an incredibly useful thing from our standpoint for the internet. And I think one of the things that happened in the wake of Charlottesville um, was that we started getting a lot of public pressure about the Daily Stormer, um, and also, you know, just a lot of discussion about the Daily Stormer. And what we saw often in the type of pressure that we got is that people didn't distinguish us from uh, from any of the other players online. Um, so they didn't understand that what we actually did was preventing us. So a lot of them didn't understand. Some of them did. And we can get into that in a second. And what we saw there was that there was really a sort of inability to distinguish be- between different kinds of platforms and why they might play different roles. Uh, and the more pressure that we got um, and the fact that people were really pushing us to terminate at that point, I think that what our what our, our CEO didn't make an arbitrary decision, he made a very conscious decision. So he was being glib in the, in the email. Um, but it, the, the point that he was making was actually a really significant one, which is to say that the ability to, to decide someone should be vulnerable to a cyber attack is a really big decision. And maybe it's one that you don't actually want people to make based on public pressure. And that was a view that we'd had for a long time within the company. But it was, I think, his decision to actually move forward, and it was definitely his decision, was based on the idea that we were in a break glass in in, in times of emergency moment. So he wanted people to understand what they were actually asking us to do, that they were asking us to remove our services so that a website online would be subject to a DDoS attack, which is itself a criminal act. And he really wanted people to think about that and talk about that and have a discussion about it. And so the decision that was ultimately made Um, It was actually followed up. He followed up with the blog post and the email, um, but he also did a lot of media around it, in part because, again, the goal was really to talk about this and talk about the fact that a company like Cloudflare is just a lot different than a social media platform, for example, which does have those gatekeeper standards, um, and to explain why and to explain that we should think about them differently. So I wonder if you can spell out a little more. You sort of touched on it. Why specifically polling service has such a big effect? We talked about DDoS attacks, and you mentioned polling service can leave a website vulnerable to an attack. But it's not like, you know, if Cloudflare decides that you're no longer going to provide service to the Daily Stormer, that means automatically that nobody can access the Daily Stormer's website. So what is the actual effect of Cloudflare no longer providing service? And why is it that, you know, the Daily Stormer couldn't just go out and find another company to provide that same service? So I think what people don't fully appreciate, and maybe we didn't even fully appreciate until the Daily Stormer, was that there actually aren't, if you have a controversial website for any number of reasons, um, 
if you don't have an entity like Cloudflare, an organization like Cloudflare who can provide a set of services in front of you, you probably can't stay up. Uh, and we actually saw this in the run-up to the Daily Stormer. Um, so some of the, the the comments that we got and some of the, the the tweets that sort of came at us were basically get out of the way so that we can DDoS them off the internet. Uh, and I think once you take away a service like ours, there just aren't that many other services that can provide that kind of protection. And certainly there are aren't really at other organizations that provide it for free. So the, the the challenge that you have in that space is that once we remove services, there is not much a company can potentially do to, pro- to protect themselves from cyber attack. And I think that's a really important thing to understand about the state of the internet today, because it's it may be concerning for other reasons about the fact that cyber attacks are that actually easy to access. Excellent. So I just want to make a little bit more explicit or maybe pull together a number of the things that you've already said about what is different for making this kind of decision in the infrastructure layer of the stack as opposed to at the application layer, that most people think about content moderation happening at Facebook and Twitter. And you said sort of that you think of yourself uh, as a neutral conduit or something along those lines. Um, And people get kind of really anxious or angry when they hear uh, platforms like Facebook and Twitter saying something along those lines as well. So why is it different in the infrastructure layer and how does that affect the way that you think about your role? So I, I actually think one of the challenges in this space is that people, a lot of people don't understand exactly how the internet works. Um, they don't understand sort of what is what is it that distinguishes, how, do, how is a website set up? How does it actually connect to the internet? Um, how do you actually get access to content? People don't understand all of the steps along the way. And I think um, people sort of understand what their ISP looks like. Um, and they could imagine that maybe it would be troubling if the ISP said, hey, we don't like you. We don't want to provide service to you. We want to pick and choose our customers. That might seem problematic to people because they have a direct experience with an ISP. I think the challenge for a company like ours is that so many people have no idea what we do and what role we play online. And I think that that creates in some ways, a set of responsibilities for us because people aren't interacting with us. They're not unlike something like Facebook where you sort of set up for a set of rules when you come in um, and everyone knows that this is the set of rules you're subject to. um, And if you don't like them, you go to a different platform. The the same thing doesn't happen in the interconnection world, right? So you're not, you can't imagine, um, you know, you're a transit provider and you say, oh, I don't like that particular content. I don't want to carry it. It doesn't really work in the normal way the the internet is structured. Um, Same thing if somebody says, I don't want to register your domain, for example, I don't want you to have a domain name and no one will agree to, to, to carry, to have your domain name, then you're not going to have that domain name and you're, and you, you're not going to have that, that domain online. So I think that the, the difference is sort of a degree of access. And the ISP is, I think, the best example as a, on the infrastructure side, where it seems kind of extreme to think about someone not having access just because an ISP doesn't like the content that you are, that you might be posting online. Uh, and, you know, I think from our standpoint, when we think about it, we're sort of in the middle. People don't even know they're interacting. They don't know they're going through our platform. They don't understand why we would be making decisions about what they can see and what they can't. And I, I think that means that we have we have to understand that that is our role. If we make a decision uh, and people didn't even know they were interacting with us, they have no idea why that content came down. And I think that's that should be troubling to people. And you mentioned earlier that you received a lot of public pressure in the sort of around the Daily Stormer incident, but that there was a misunderstanding of Cloudflare's role there. Is that the misunderstanding that you're getting at? Like, is it something to do with people don't understand how few other options there are at that layer of the stack? Or what is it that you think that the public misunderstands about Cloudflare's role? If they know about it at all. 
<laughs> yeah, right. No, I think that's the problem, right? I, I think they don't know about it at all. And I think that there's a very, I think people think of tech companies, um, you know, and I'm, I'm based in Washington, D.C. So I think this happens a fair amount in Washington, D.C. Um, and there are of some very large tech providers. And everyone assumes that you sort of fit into that model uh, and you have the same types of services. And they don't necessarily go down and think about what it then means, how it would then impact the internet overall if you were taking action at the content moderation, at the again, at the ISP level, for example, at the internet service provider level, right? Your Comcast level. They don't think about the, the long-term effect of that because they're thinking about the social media platforms first and foremost. So the pressure that you get is pressure that's being directed at any Anyone who might be in any way affiliated with this piece of content, but it's not, it doesn't necessarily appreciate that different entities might have different roles with respect to that content. Um, and frankly, you know, one of the challenges actually in the space, even it's the, the, the attack piece is what becomes relevant, right? So when we remove our services, the, the, the information, as you said before, doesn't immediately come offline. It just makes it vulnerable to cyber attack. And Understanding that as a difference. So, you know, people are pressuring us to do something that essentially facilitates a cyber attack, which is feels a little weird when you think about it. And I don't think that people, if they understood that better, would necessarily have been quite as vocal advocates for it as I think we might have heard at the time. And so because you're you tend to be sort of under the radar, is your experience in these moments where uh, your public profile bubbles up? Is it sort of your working away quietly and then a lot of people discover Cloudflare and sort of put pressure and then it vanishes? Or did that put Cloudflare more more sort of uh, reliably on the public radar after the Daily Stormer incident? <laughs> well, we kind of put ourselves on the public radar in some ways. We really did engage a lot after the Daily Stormer. We really wanted to talk to people. And, you know, one of the things that we did um, at the time uh, we've had a transparency report for many, many years. And one of the things that we did early on when we put out our transparency report, so a transparency report to, to disclose um, types of law enforcement requests that we get, commitments that we make from a privacy standpoint, for example. Um, and one of the commitments that we had at the time was that we we wouldn't terminate services um, based on a political decision. Um, and there's a big question about what that actually means, right? But we had we had, had that, that idea as something that was a concept behind a lot of the things that we did. And I think we wanted to really make sure that people understood um, that we had made this decision um, and that we had concerns about it. So so the, the impact of that was sort of twofold. One, we ended up talking to a lot of people. <laughs> um, and then the, the, the second piece of that was in some ways, um, we actually got blowback. Um, and I, th I think that that's in some ways what we were trying to do, right? We were trying to sort of say, this is an emergency, we need to talk about this. So we started to get pressure um, on the other side to say, hey, this was a wrong decision for you to make. And we did get a fair amount of pressure on that side. And in, in some ways, we got a counterbalance to the very, some of the knee jerk um, reaction that we had gotten in the first instance, um, which I think was just a useful counterpoint to make people think about that issue a little bit more. We, we, we still continue to get abuse complaints, for example, um, on different sites. That, that is something that, um, that in some ways went up as well. Um, but there was a counterbalance in a way that there hadn't been before. So let's then talk about the the next sort of really high profile incident, which was uh, two years later in 2019, Cloudflare pulled service from the 8chan forum, which at that point had sort of been the host of advance announcements of three mass shootings in less than six months, uh, the last one being the shooting in El Paso, Texas, um, in which a gunman killed 23 people. And what's interesting about that is, uh, again, uh, your CEO, Matthew Prince, put out this blog post about terminating service. And 
the tone is really different from the Daily Stormer blog post. You know, he does he doesn't sort of talk glibly or know about being in a bad mood. It seemed like it was a much more considered position. Um, and he uses this interesting phrase that the Daily Stormer and HN were lawless platforms and suggests that I'm just going to read from the post. In cases like these where platforms have been designed to be lawless and unmoderated and where platforms have demonstrated their ability to cause real harm, it may mean moving enforcement mechanisms further down the technical stack. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what is the evolution of thinking between the Daily Stormer and the HN decision? And why does the lawlessness of a platform uh, shape Cloudflare's decision making? Yeah, it, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about that um, and a lot of time thinking about that post and have spent a lot of time afterwards as well. Um, I, you know, I think that the point that we sort of came to in the years between uh, was that there is, you know, our, our sense had always been that there is more responsibility at the, the top part of the stack, as, as we would call it. So the, the entities that actually, uh, you know, the social media platforms, for example, um, that promote content for, or uh, even the search engines that help you find content, and then, you know, sort of moving down a little bit, maybe the, the question of when you're storing content and can actually remove it. Um, there, there are sort of a different sets of responsibilities. I think what we saw when, when it came to HN um, and the mass shootings was that you had a, a site that didn't take action even after a number of mass shootings. And there's a, there, there is a big overarching question uh, in tech policy about what do you do? What do you do in those circumstances where you have an entity where the sort of norms, the normal things that people should do or the norms that we think apply haven't worked or haven't been applied? So in the, in the HN world, you, the, the way um, they would get complaints, often they get complaints through us. Um, and so we would pass along complaints um, on various issues to them because, you know, people see us in front of their website. They don't know where the website's hosting. And so they want to, they want to um, pass a complaint along and, and we may actually be the, the entity that they pass them to first. We then pass them along to the organization. And I think what we often saw in that space was that they really weren't moderating. Um, they, they, they certainly were uh, notified of, of, of information that might have been problematic really wasn't moderated. And I think by the time we got to the the, the horrible um, shootings um, that, that spring, I think we sort of came to a realization that at some point enough had to be enough. Um, and there maybe it was, there was a time when you have to think about potentially taking action. Uh, and that was a really challenging decision for us. And it's still a really challenging one, in part because you have to think about when that happens and what the right format and what the what the legal requirement is potentially as well. Those are hard questions, um, and that was a that was a hard decision. Um, but it was a very different flavor of decision from the original Daily Stormer one. Great. So, can you give us a, a bit more detail on how you think about that when and sort of what the what the framework is that you've been developing? Because I mean, you you talked about how um, the decision around Daily Stormer was in part to provoke that public conversation, and and Matthew talked about that at the time that people sort of weren't really aware of what was going on, and so there wanted to be a public conversation about this um, and to try and develop sort of a framework so that it wasn't this arbitrary exercise of power in a bad mood or whatever you or Matthew doesn't like on the internet, it's just going to go down. What is the framework for thinking that through and how, how come it isn't just still completely arbitrary? So one of the things we started doing around that time was to really think about how do we talk about all of the different 
different entities that play a role in how you get content online. So Matthew had done this a little bit at the time of the Daily Stormer. So um, in the original blog post, he had a description of the variety of services that that actually help you get to content. Um, but what we started to do was to think about what is the relationship between them. Um, and the, the idea in that framework is to say, you should always take action first at the ones who are potentially most able and sort of responsible for that content. Responsible is a tricky word, um, but but recognizing that that ent an entity that's promoting it, for example, or uh, helping you find it, um, who's really in the business of content uh, might be able to do more uh, to actually address the content um, than someone who's really just in the, you know, I'm gonna help you connect to this website place. And so we started sort of thinking about who does it, who should a complaint go to first? And, and how do we think then about when it actually comes down um, to an, an organization like us or to a, to a company like us? Uh, and so, so we, have a, we have a little bit of a framework for that idea. And, and I, I think our sense was that once you start going down deeper into the stack, um, you really should start to think about legal process. So, you know, an organization, um, a company like Facebook, uh, who might want to take action um, to sort of clean up their community, doesn't shouldn't necessarily require um, a legal order to take action or even sort of legal process. But maybe before you take away someone's uh, internet access, um, you need to, you should go to a court about that. And so understanding when that looks like, when, when legal process becomes important, um, it seemed to us it was sort of a, the, the, the higher you go up the stack, the less legal process that's required and the more content moderation that you do. And the lower you go down the stack, when you sort of get to the access layers, the more legal process that you require and the less content moderation that you should do. And it sort of starts to move down um, if the content moderation things that actually do put pressure on an organization um, that is most likely to be responsible for content uh, haven't taken action. And so that's when it starts to move. If that's still not very defined um, because it's not an exact, yes, there will be three complaints and then we will move down the stack, but at least it gives us a way of thinking about what it should look like. And so is that something that you're actively monitoring these kinds of websites and keeping an eye? Like, what's the trigger for a decision like that in the future? Or is it something that depends, for example, on an amount of public attention and public outrage? So I think in some ways, unfortunately, those things go together. I, you know, I think that the, the types of complaints that we get um, are often proportionate to um, the number of people that are looking at a site. Uh, which means that it has more public outrage because more people are looking at it. So, you know, in, in the sort of internet world, you could imagine a website that has incredibly offensive content on it um, somewhere out in the ether and no one is looking at it. And there is the question of whether that means you should take action on it or not, right? Um, the content might be incredibly problematic. Some of the abuse complaints might be really, you know, they, they may actually get some abuse complaints. But the, the questions of harm, if no one is looking at a, at, at a, a website, look a lot different. Um, and again, that, that goes into that promotion component or that ability to find it. Um, so say it's been deprioritized in search. Uh, it's not on Facebook because they took it offline. No one can really find it. The question of whether you need to take action on a site like that looks a lot different um, than it does if all of a sudden lots of people are interacting with content and have you know commentary on it and there's student public outrage on it. Uh, and I think that's actually, that is what we saw with HN. I think the reality of why it was so problematic was because of the way people had engaged with it around the shootings. Um, and it was something that was a really direct public problem um, that was not sort of off quietly in the, in the ether. 
So one thing that we've seen in the last few years has been that uh, major social media platforms have been a lot more heavy-handed in enforcing their policies. Uh, there are obviously a, a lot of discussions to be had about whether they're doing enough, um, but they're certainly, you know, kicking off a lot more people than they used to. You know, in recent months, we've seen major platforms like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter taking action against extremist groups, QAnon, uh, bad actors spreading misinformation about the pandemic. Uh, Reddit even took the step of booting off the uh, subreddit, The Donald. But another way of looking at this is that, you know, now these issues might be Cloudflare's problems. Because if you take a look at, you know, The Donald, they now have their own website, independent of Reddit, which has a very high traffic. So does that sort of potential greater responsibility with these communities moving off into their own sites worry Cloudflare at all? Is that something that you're thinking about? So I, I think that's a hard question. I think it doesn't worry us in the abstract. I think that there's still the reality of how you find content online that is still not necessarily about the content being existing online. Um, and that is where a lot of other entities that are in the content business sort of come into play. So it's not direct, I guess, is the point. Um, it's it's a question of then how you find that website, how you find out how much traffic, you know, can you can you find it and figure out that they have a lot of things going on on that site, for example. I, I don't think that, one of, one of the things I, I, I think that has been interesting, we did commit to being very transparent about when we take action. Uh, and I, I think it remains to be seen um, whether that will be something that really bubbles up a lot more um, and whether we see the sort of types of significant harms that we saw on, uh, you know, because of HN, for example, in other areas. And it, we, we don't really know yet, I think. One thing uh, I'd like to ask you about is that, uh, so the examples that we've talked about today are American examples. They're controversies um, about content in America. But Cloudflare is a global company. Could you give us a bit of a background into sort of the extent of your global operations, but also how things might differ in different markets? Sure, absolutely. So we are definitely a global company. We run a global network. We have infrastructure in more than 100 countries in 200 cities. Uh, so very widespread. We have customers all around the world. Uh, so very much a global network from that standpoint. Um, I think that the standards, um, you know, different countries look at, at these issues very, very differently, and they take different actions. Um, and it's it's been... Uh, in my time at Cloudflare, it's just that's been something that's really interesting to learn about in more depth. The U.S. Um, is not doesn't typically block, uh, for example, uh, websites. Um, it's just not something that we normally do. Again, going back to that ISP level, um, that is something that is done in a lot of other countries around the world. Uh, you have a lot more things that are geo-restricted to, to not be able to see it in that country, for example, something which you don't often see in the U.S., um, so that's just on the sort of practical side. On the regulatory side, it's very different as well. So in the EU, uh, there are lots of potential regulatory approaches um, trying to tackle some of the challenges that we see online. And they just look a lot different, I think, than what we're seeing in the US. Um, the, the one thing I would say about the, the EU and the regulatory model there is they have been involved in those questions about thinking through different kinds of, of entities online. Um, so if you look at some of the, the more recent regulations that have come out and directives that have come out, uh, they have actually thought about what kinds of services are they are they seeking to apply them to. They haven't been 
broad brush. Um, they've actually distinguished between different kinds of services, service providers, uh, and they've been pretty targeted to what they're trying to accomplish. So it, it looks a lot different, um, but they, I think because they have a, a broader regulatory model that they are sort of aiming for, they've also been much more targeted in thinking about what regulations apply to what entities. And one of the things we were talking about sort of public pressure to moderate content at the level, the the infrastructure level of the internet, but obviously also often there can be government pressure as well. Uh, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, how Cloudflare interacts with different governments around the world and whether you get different kinds of requests from different kinds of government around the world. So yes, uh, sure, absolutely. Um, so we do get lots of different kinds of requests uh, and from different kinds of providers. I think I think this goes back to the, my, my point before about different countries have different approaches. Um, often what you find are that countries with regulations on these issues, and let's let's take out the EU for a minute. Um, we'll, we'll talk about we can talk about that one separately. But um, they often try to apply regulations to the entities that they know they have jurisdiction over that are very clearly within their borders. So what you find in a lot of places is that they have um, requirements for, again, telecommunication providers, so ISPs, um, because those tend to be local, those tend to be the requirements of, you know, who is actually seeing the internet. Um, and they, they are certainly on the ground, they have, um, they have cables on the ground. Um, and so they end up having legal requirements sometimes that are actually about government requests. So um, they could be anything from actually turning off the internet, um, which we've seen in a variety of different places around the world. You know, in India, we've seen sort of requests to turn off um, internet access because there are exams and they think that people will cheat. And so just turn off the internet and that will solve your problem. But to, uh, to specific requests for blocking at the, um, at the DNS level, which um, is, is relatively frequent in other places around the world. So you see those often. Um, it often depends um, just in terms of what, what we see, um, often what we see is that it goes to the, the local entity first. We may have then have partnerships with that local entity where we have conversations with them about it, um, but it's often directed at them and not necessarily at us as a U.S. company. Great. So one of the things that we we like to ask guests is sort of what's the thing that keeps you up at night? <laughs> because this this issue space is so vast and has so many different corners and there are often things that, you know, of course, we don't think to ask. So if, if you had to predict, you know, what's the next time that our listeners hear about Cloudflare um, or what are the, the major issues that you think are, are facing the company? What is it? Well, so I hope it's not the next time you hear about Cloudflare. I hope you hear about it for all sorts of good reasons. <laughs> Um, that, that's my goal. Um, I hope you hear about it because we're, we're helping protect a bunch of people around the world uh, from from cyber attack. Um, but you know the, the things that are that keep me up at, at night right now on the public policy side. I think what we're seeing a lot is actually conflicting uh, regulation. So potential concerns that everyone sort of wants their own hand in, in what their citizens can see. Uh, and that itself creates a lot of pressure for global companies to think about how we address those concerns um, and recognize that, you know, just because um, a country in the Middle East wants to sort of cut off content to certain, you know, to LGBTQ groups, potentially, you have to think through that and then think about what that means for you as a company. And so there, there are these broad sets of conflicting standards for different countries that seem to be getting worse um, and seem to be getting to a much harder place to deal with globally. So I think for me, um, the sort of thing that keeps me up at night is trying to think through how do we handle 
just different kinds of obligations from different countries, some of which are maybe driven for very legitimate reasons, um, some of which may be driven by problematic concerns or, you know, concerns that maybe seem a little troubling from a human rights standpoint, for example. Um, and, and how do we parse our way through them? Um, and those are those are big issues that aren't just about us. I think that's just about sort of the future of the Internet overall. Um, but we certainly recognize that we have an important place to play in them. Great. And that's kind of the the thing that I was trying to get at earlier about how you think about Cloudflare's obligations to follow local law, but also its obligations to uphold human rights. And in particular, where you get uh, requests from governments or, or demands from governments that perhaps uh, seem to conflict with international human rights or other human rights requirements. And for example, I noticed uh, last week that Cloudflare has joined the, the Global Network Initiative, which is a, a non-governmental organization that looks exactly at this issue. Um, and so it would be great to hear you speak just a little bit more about how you think about that tension and what are your guiding principles. So yeah, we, so we were very excited to join GNI. It's something we'd actually been talking about for a long time. And so I'm very excited we are actually on board now. So, so those are really challenging questions. And that's actually one of the reasons why we joined GNI. Um, you know, it's a forum to have those discussions, to think about how uh, human rights human rights applies in that context um, and to think about what we are supposed to do in that space and what the appropriate action is. You know, I think that there are challenging questions that, about the sort of lines between sovereignty. So, you know, what is a country allowed to do within its own borders? What restrictions are they allowed to put in place? And then some core human rights principles about freedom of expression and freedom of, of, of access to information and freedom of association. Um, and those, those underlying principles can be at tension sometimes. And for a company to make those decisions seems a little unfair <laughs> in many ways, right? And, and so, so I think the, the benefit of having a group that's together, you know, GN, what GNI does is actually help you think through them um, as, a, as a sector. So what should the ICT sector do in this space? How do we think about these challenges? How do we think about these problems? How do we address these tensions? Um, when is it a, a positive thing for human rights to get access to the internet um, versus something that actually causes harm? Um, those evaluations, often you just need to sort of have someone to talk them through. And that's really where what we want to do in that space. We want to be, we want to be an active member of people who are thinking about what challenges come up and then being really thoughtful about what we do next. Um, you know, I think one of the things that came out after Daily Stormer was that we really wanted to be an active participant in the debate. We wanted to make sure that we people understood that we, we take our responsibility very seriously uh, and we are trying to be thoughtful and transparent about how we move forward on it. Um, we do recognize that having a significant percentage of, of the web traveling through our network gives us a responsibility. And trying to make sure that we do we deal with that in a trustworthy way, in a transparent way is really important to us. All right. On that note, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer for this episode was Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.